listening to the Vineyard Church's UK and Ireland podcast. The following audio was taken from the Cause to Live For 2022, our annual event for students' 20s and 30s. Morning, everyone. How's things? Oh, let me just try and get my slides going. Oh, there we go. Um, It is an absolute joy to be here. I've been so pumped about coming to be with you this morning. Um, Many reasons for my excitement. Let me name a few. I love Nottingham. Any, any, anyone from Nottingham in the room? Um, not as many as I thought. So I, I studied here in Nottingham back in the early noughties. This is where I met my wife, B. I was studying maths and philosophy. I was a nerd. My wife was studying fashion and textiles. So it was like a creative connecting with a nerd and sparks started to fly. You know what I mean? Um, there was a problem. It was only a minor problem. The problem was she was dating someone else. Um, So I thought, look, I need to do the honourable thing here. I'm going to keep a distance. And from a distance, I'm going to pray that the relationship falls apart. (laughs) And it says in Scripture, the Lord honours the prayer of a righteous man. And the Lord heard that cry. He answered that prayer. The relationship did fall apart. I'm not going to lie, it it was messy. Um, But I was there to comfort me every step of the way. I knew she needed a time of processing, of healing. I thought two weeks should do the job. And and, and we got together. I'm a half joking, but 20 years later, we've been married for 19 years. We have three kids. So there you go. So I love Nottingham. Secondly, I love the vineyard. Um, This feels like to me home turf, Um, spiritually, theologically, like this is home for me. So it's an absolute joy to be with the Vineyard family. And the third reason um, that I'm just so excited to be here is the theme of this conference, not my will, but yours. This is a key message for a moment like this. These are the five words that change the course of human history. Without these five words, there is no cross. These are the words Jesus proclaimed from Gethsemane as he contemplates the cross and in a moment of panic says, Father, is there another way? Could you take this cup of suffering from me? And then come the five words, not my will, but yours. And he says it on three occasions. So without these five words, there's no cross. Without these five words, there's no resurrection. Without these five words, there is no inbreaking of the new creation. There is no outpouring of the Spirit. There is no birthing of the church. There is no inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Are we grateful for these five words? And when we proclaim these five words, everything begins to change. When we say to God, not my will, but yours, the kingdom of God forcefully advances. Do we believe it? I'm just going to hand over my slides for people at the back to control it because my iPad's absolutely freaking out and it's getting messy up here on stage. So one moment while I sort out the technology... Um, Here we go, I'm trusting you guys at the back. Can we just give a round of applause for those that do the technology? In my mind, that would be my worst job, but these guys are bossing it, so I'm just going to hand control over to you. Um, Just put your hand in the air if you remember your first day of primary school. Hand in the air. 
there's only about seven in the room. I, I can't remember my first day of primary school. Um, I actually emailed my mum this week and said, Mum, do you have any photos of my first day of primary school? I want to speak about this to the guys in Nottingham. And she looked through and said, I actually don't. Um, but I do have a photo of your brother, Tim, and his first day of primary school. And, and to be honest, that was kind of painful because that was obviously a key moment, Tim's first day, but didn't even bother taking a photo of my first day. So I said, look, that's painful, Mum, but can you just send the one of Tim? So you sent one of Tim. Let's just have a little look of Tim's first day at primary school. Um, and there's a couple of things that stand out to me. One, the facial expression. That is a boy who's not excited about his first day at primary school. Secondly, the shorts. I, I said to mum, said, are they definitely shorts? Because they kind of look like a mini skirt to me, mum. If they are shorts, they are unbelievably short shorts. Um, but she said they, they are actually shorts. Um, What's that got to do with anything? Well, not much really. But I do want to take you back to the first century educational system in, um, in the time of Jesus. So primary school was called Betsafer, House of the Book. And as you went to primary school, on your first day, you were given a slate. Now on that slate, you were going to learn the Hebrew alphabet. You were going to learn to read and write. And eventually you were going to learn by heart, the entire Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. So when you ended Betzafer at the age of 10, 11, the first five books of the Old Testament, you would have memorised by heart. That's pretty incredible, right? Just imagine trying to do that. The capacity of the human mind to memorise text is extraordinary. We should utilise that capacity more. I'm aware of this because I've got three kids, but let's rewind a decade when they were sort of like toddlers. Uh, my two boys, they had a favourite book, not on the level of scripture as a kind of sacred text, but not far off. It was called The Gruffalo's Child. Anyone aware of The Gruffalo's Child? And every evening before bed, it was like, kids, should we read a book? And it's like, yes. Well, what book? And it'd be like, Gruffalo's Child. My response would be like, we, we read that yesterday. And the day before yesterday and the day before that, is there not another book? No, Gruffalo's Child, right? I read it so many times over like a six-month period, it almost killed me, but it somehow went into the memory bank. And every so often, I'm walking through the streets of London, I'm totally bored, and it just comes to the surface. The Gruffalo said that no Gruffalo should ever set foot in the deep dark wood. Why not? Why not? Because if you do, the big bad mouse will be after you. I met him once, said the Gruffalo. I met him a long, long time ago. What does he look like? Tell us, Dad. Is he terribly big and terribly bad? I can't quite remember, the Gruffalo said. And then he thought for a minute and he scratched his head. The big bad mouse is terribly strong and his scaly tail is terribly long and his eyes are like pools of terrible fire and his terrible whiskers are tougher than wire. I'll leave it there, but you get the idea. I wish I'd been reading my kids' scripture, but I was reading the Gruffalo's child. So, back to Betsafer Primary School. They're given a slate. On this slate, they're going to learn the Hebrew alphabet. They're going to learn to read and write. They're going to learn to memorise the entire Torah. But day one of primary school was special. The first thing the teacher did, he took the slate, he poured honey all over it and said to these young minds, I want you to lick the slate clean. So imagine that, they take the slate and they're like, <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> right? Now imagine what that would do in your imagination. Now listen to these words of the psalmist. 
Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to the mouth. I can imagine the psalmist in his mind goes back to being four or five years old. That was amazing. That was amazing. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. You see, for the Jewish community, they cherished the law, the commands of God. They tasted sweet on the mouth, on the lips, because they led to life. And more than leading to life, they were a lamp directing their steps. Let me remind you of the Hebrew creation story, the opening words of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be... Tough crowd. God said, let there be... Right? That's the opening of the story. So you've got the Word of God proclaiming let there be light. And you've got the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. This is a worldview creating text, meant to shape our imagination. In other words, whenever you open up the Scriptures and say, come Holy Spirit, you do that in the vineyard, right? Open up the Scriptures and say, come Holy Spirit. I think you do, right? There is a guarantee there'll be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. That is why there is a wrestle for you each day to bother to open up the Scriptures. The enemy will try and rob you of that. The enemy knows if you open up the Word and say, come Holy Spirit, there is a promise, a guarantee, there'll be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. You see, in this creation narrative, we get a vision for human flourishing. What fullness of life looks like. What true freedom looks like. That's what we're longing for, right? True freedom. Think about the word freedom. What do we mean when we talk about freedom? Well, let me tell you what the culture says freedom looks like. It's the word autonomy, right? It's a compound word. Two words shoved together to form a new word. Autonomos. Auto meaning self, nomos meaning law. Freedom is being a law unto yourself. You do what the heck you want. That is true freedom. And the Bible gives us a very different picture of what true freedom looks like. Let me tell you about something called the principle of first mention. This is a hermeneutical principle. In other words, a principle that helps us interpret the text. It was used by the rabbis in the early centuries. If you wanted to know what a word actually meant, you would go back to the first use of that word in Scripture and the first use would determine the meaning of the word. So if you want to know what freedom means biblically, you find the first use in Scripture. And where is it? It's in Genesis chapter 2. Let's read this. The Lord God took the man, put him in this garden of abundance to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are there we go, good reading. You are free to eat from any tree, just don't eat that one fruit, right? You're free, but don't eat that fruit over there. What does freedom look like? Freedom comes through submission. Freedom comes when we say, not my will be done, but yours. Freedom isn't being a law unto yourself. That's slavery, by the way. Freedom is about submission. 
It isn't the absence of boundaries, it's living life fully with the right boundaries in place. And it starts when we say these five words, the five words of Jesus in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours. So where do we find the boundaries? The answer is in Scripture. When we open up the Word, welcome the Spirit. There'll be an explosion of light, an explosion of life. The question is, are you going to open up the Word and welcome the Spirit? When we read Scripture, it's not just honey on the lips. It's not just a light for the path. It's also a lens to help us see the world as God sees the world. And about five years ago, Something sudden and tragic happened in my family. My um, in-laws, mother-in-law, father-in-law were on holiday in Wales and my father-in-law went for a walk, um, a walk he never came back from. He went to have his quiet time. He basically found a bench in Dale overlooking the sea, opened up the scriptures and started reading Psalm 63 and had a heart attack. It was found dead by a farmer um, we got the call and you can imagine something as sudden like that. You go into complete shock. We got the kids together. We were in London at the time. Um, we got in the car. We drove down to Wales and spent the next weekend processing this tragic moment, this kind of shocking event. And as a family, we all responded differently. But I noticed my brother-in-law, Paddy, started doing something and I couldn't work out what he was doing. He'd taken my father-in-law's glasses, Nick wore glasses, and, and he decided that he was going to wear them the entire weekend. Now, have you, have you ever worn somebody else's glasses? Like when it's prescription glasses, you're like, what is, what is wrong with you? Like, I, I can't see anything. And he was walking around in these glasses. And I said to Paddy, I took him to one side and I was like, mate, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I'm fascinated you're wearing Nick's glasses, but I'm guessing you can't see it that much. Just wondering what's going on. And this is what he said to me. He said, Pete, the reason I'm wearing his glasses, I just want to see the world as my dad saw the world. I just want it to see the world as my dad saw the world. I want to see the world through his eyes. And as he said it, I was like, that's the gift of Scripture. Scripture is a lens. It creates a worldview that enables us to see the world as God sees the world. The question for you and I in this cultural moment is what glasses are you wearing? What glasses are you going to choose to wear? What happens where you, when you wear the wrong glasses? The answer is you can't see very clearly. The answer is we begin to embrace notions of freedom that actually enslave us. We start living in false narratives, bowing to false gods, and rather than living in the light, we embrace the darkness that Jesus came to overcome. Rather than living life fully, we incrementally tiptoe towards death. Like this is my cultural um, analysis of this moment. It comes in three parts because all sermons should come in three parts. So this is my analysis of this cultural moment. You ready? Number one, we in the church, I'm talking to the church right now, we've embraced secular narratives that have been masquerading as kingdom narratives. Secular narratives that look Christian, sound Christian, but fundamentally aren't Christian. And we've embraced them in the church. Number two, hidden into those narratives, smuggled into those narratives are the idols of our age. And when we embrace the narratives, we bow down and worship the idols. Number three, these idols have emptied the church of power. 
right? The Vineyard Church is an outlier. If you look across not just the UK, but across the West, the church is in massive decline. It is hemorrhaging. These idols are emptying the church of power. And this is a moment for us to wake up, right? So let me remind you of the story that we belong to. This is the story of the kingdom of God. It goes something like this. Creation, that's Genesis 1 and 2, a vision of human flourishing life as it was created to be lived. And then Genesis 3, the story of sin entering the world. We call that the fall. Created order begins to unravel. Let's call that decreation. And we see it all around us, the pain, the suffering, the violence. The rest of the story is a story of redemption, It's a story of restoration. It's a story of renewal through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. That brings about the end of the story, which is heaven and earth being reconciled, God making all things new. This is the story. Who's at the centre of the story? Whoa, really tough crowd. Let's try that one more time because I tried to put it in big letters so it was really, really visible. But okay, who's at the centre of the story? Oh, there we go, amen. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. God's at the centre of the story. Now, let's compare that with the secular narrative. And I want you to notice the shape of the secular narrative. This is why this is so confusing for a younger generation, right? What happened during the Enlightenment is some of the big Enlightenment thinkers said, look, we love the shape of the Judeo-Christian story. We love that it has a beginning. We love that it counts for the brokenness and the suffering we see all around us. We also love that it has a linear view of time. There's a progress towards this utopian vision, this vision of perfection. What we hate about the story is that God's at the centre of the story. So we want to put God and push God to one side. We want to put the autonomous, rational self at the centre of the story. Now notice the language then of dark ages leading to an age of light. This is gospel language. The early writers, when they were articulating the story of the incarnation, they said, those walking in darkness have seen a great, Light. The answer is always going to be light if you want to participate. And Jesus said, I'm the of the world. There we go, right? Jesus is the one that leads us from darkness into the kingdom of Amen, right? So these enlightenment thinkers are like, we like that language. Dark ages leading to light. Think of the language of Renaissance, French word meaning rebirth. Like this is ripped out. Right of John chapter 3, Jesus in a conversation with Nicodemus saying, if you want to be part of what I'm doing, you need to be born again of the Spirit. And the Enlightenment thinks like, oh, we like that. But we want to rebirth, not by the Spirit of God, because we've kicked God out of this story. We want to rebirth through human endeavour and scientific advance. We want to be the centre of the story. Notice the shape of the story, right? Tom Holland, the historian, not (laughs) Spider-Man. No idea what Spider-Man would think as for any of this. But the historian, Tom Holland, in his epic book, Dominion, subtitled The Making of the Western Mind, it's a book about this new religion of secularism. He describes secularism as, and this is his phrase, godless Christianity. Essentially, the shape of the Judeo-Christian story, God pushed out of the equation. 
It's Christianity without Christ. It's the kingdom without the king, right? It might look like the kingdom story. At times, it might sound like the Christian story. Here's the litmus test. If Christ isn't the centre of the story, it isn't the kingdom story. If the cross isn't the centre of the remedy, it isn't the kingdom remedy. Our task right now is to wake up. Right? We've been swallowing secular narratives and hidden into those narratives of the idols of our age and these idols are emptying the church of power. C.S. Lewis said, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. When you bow down to idols, they will break your heart. The task of the church right now is to wake up. We need to expose the narratives that we've been consuming. We need to dethrone the idols we've been bowing down to. And we need to surrender afresh to Jesus as King with the ancient proclamation, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. How do we do this? Tim Keller, brilliant thinker, theologian, writer, pastor, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, well worth reading. He says, here's how you dethrone idols. Three steps, because there's always three steps. Can I hear an amen? Always three steps. And if they begin with the same letter, then that's when you begin to sell books, right? <laughs> that's when money gets involved. Um, here's the three steps. Hopefully it'll appear on the screen. Number one, we need to recognise Wake up and recognise we've been bowing to idols. Two, we repent. We turn from the idols and we turn towards Jesus. And number three, we replace the idols. We put Jesus back on the throne. That process begins with recognition. If you're not even aware that you've embraced the narratives, you will not be aware that you're bowing to the idols and you will not be aware that you're trying to do the Christian life without the power that's intended for you to help you follow the way of Jesus. We need to recognise, we need to expose the narratives, expose the idols. And we could do this for any one of like many idols, but I want to do it for one this morning because it's one of the idols that the church is terrified about talking about and therefore there's so much confusion. I want to talk about the idol of sexual fulfilment. Anxiety levels rise. <laughs> Some are leaning in, yes. Excitement as well. I want to talk about the narrative that we've embraced in the West when it comes to sexual fulfilment. I want to take you back to the 60s and 70s, the sexual revolution. Now, no one in the room was around for this, right? Um, but there was an intellectual movement that led to a revolution that we are experiencing decades and decades later. It is shaping our minds decades and decades later. Now, there was a, an intellectual figure he was the father figure of the sexual revolution. His name, Wilhelm Reich. Here's his book, The Sexual Revolution. This is the subtitle toward a self-governing character structure. Self at the centre of the story, right? Now, most in the room won't be aware of this guy or his thinking, but if we're going to expose the narrative, we should at least engage with what was the thinking behind this revolution because many of us have embraced the story and we don't even know the roots. So let me expose the narrative that he offered to the world and the world went, <laughs> lovely, right? Here's, here's his foundational principle. Number one, there is no God. He was building his thinking on Marxist ideology. Um, he and Marx, um, atheists. So foundational principle, there is no 
God. That's the intellectual foundation of the revolution. He quotes Marx in his work. Marx said this, the secret to the Holy Family, in other words, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the triune life of God, is the earthly family. To make the former disappear, which was the purpose, the latter must be destroyed. In theory, but this isn't just intellectual, it needs to become a movement that shapes lives. It needs to be destroyed in practice too. And he says in his work, if this revolution is a success and we can stand here now, 2022, and be like, wow, did it shape the West? He said, if this movement is a success, it will do two things. Number one, it will destroy the family. It will totally destroy the family. And secondly, it will replace religion and in particular Christianity with a new vision for human flourishing. So so the foundational principle, there is no God. Now we're gonna build like the logical steps that follow on that foundation. So if there is no God, it makes sense that we are the centre of the universe. You put the self at the centre of the story, right? We are the centre of the universe. Now if we are the centre of the universe, in other words, we've got rid of agape love, divine love, perfect love, unconditional love. We've got rid of that because we've got rid of God. So if we've got rid of agape love, the highest form of love is Eros love, present in our sexual erotic desires. So listen to these words, a guy called Ernest Becker. He says, after all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? Because that is what we're doing in the dating culture that surrounds us. We're looking for people to heal us, to, to complete us, like to save us. We're looking for redemption. He says, we want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our creation has not been in vain. We turn to the love partner for the experience of the heroic, for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through love. Needless to say, human partners can't do this. When you take an infinite longing to a finite being, you're going to get your heart broken. And you're going to be bitterly disappointed. And it's happening all the time. Not just outside the church, but within the church, right? Now, I read this article recently. It was a biography of Wilhelm Reich. And the title grabbed me. I just thought, that is brilliant. I'm in. I want to read it. So here's the title. It was a work looking at his life and his thinking. The man who thought orgasms could save the world. Brilliant and and funny. Um, But it's also tragic because he genuinely believed that to be true. He thought the power present in that moment of sexual release, in that moment of orgasm, within that moment was the power that could rebirth the cosmos. He genuinely believed that. And this is part of the movement that we've been shaped by. Now, orgasms are great, aren't they? Again, nervous energy. We're in a church. Are we allowed to acknowledge that they're good? Is this, is this allowed to the vineyard? Allow this kind of statement in, in the church setting? Orgasms are incredible, right? But do they have the power to rebirth the cosmos? And the answer is absolutely not. But when you embrace a narrative that embrace that kind of mindset, there's going to be a lot of pain and you're going to see it all around in the surrounding culture. So if the highest form of love is eros love, because agape love's out of the question now, it follows that sexual fulfilment is not just a key, it is the key to human flourishing. 
Sexual fulfillment is the key to human flourishing. And if sexual fulfillment is the key to human flourishing, then freedom to express our sexual desires, that's a basic human right. And believing anything other than that is incredibly harmful in this cultural moment, right? This is the foundation of the revolution that has shaped the West in such a dramatic way. Now, here's how um, arguments in philosophy emerge. You start with a foundational principle, if A, and then you build on that. If A, then B. Hopefully this will come up on the screen. And then you follow on from that. If B, then C. If C, then D. And you keep building until you arrive at a conclusion. Now, after time, everyone agrees with A and B. Universal agreement on A and B. So you don't even talk about A and B. So you start with if C, then D, and you build towards the conclusion. Now, when it comes to the argument I've been presenting, this is the common understanding in the secular West that I think many in the church have bought into, that sexual fulfillment is the key to human flourishing and freedom to express our sexual desires, that's a basic human right. I think most people buy into that thinking in the secular West right now, particularly a younger generation that weren't around when this revolution kicked in. And what they don't realise is this belief that sexual fulfilment is the key to human flourishing is a logical byproduct of the foundational belief there is no God, right? So what happens when people come to faith is there's two statements they're trying to syncretize. There is no God and sexual fulfillment is the key to human flourishing and they want both. I want Jesus. I believe there is a God who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. I want Jesus and I want sexual fulfillment to be the key to human flourishing. I'm trying to syncretize these two beliefs that are incompatible. One follows from there is no God And the other is the statement, there is a God. So what happens when the Spirit does a work of transformation, sanctifying us from the inside out? Well, let's go through the tower together. Foundational belief, there is a God. Next slide. Therefore, we can't be the centre of the universe. God is the centre of the universe. And we begin to reorientate our lives around him. If God is the centre of the universe, then the highest form of love can't be eros love. It is agape love, divine love, unconditional love. And if the highest form of love is agape love, then sexual fulfilment can't be the key to human flourishing. The love of God is the key to human flourishing. All you need is the love of the Father made available through the Son comes to us through the power of the Spirit. All you need is the love of God to live life fully. Let's just pause here because there's two massive implications to this if the love of God is actually the key to human flourishing. Firstly, we can say that Christ, though single and sexually inactive, was fully, fully alive. If you believe sexual fulfillment is the key to human flourishing, you have to say that Jesus was unfulfilled, didn't live life fully, and therefore cannot offer you fullness of life. The understanding that sexual fulfillment is the key to human flourishing, when that mindset enters the church, the enemy begins to whisper to the sons and daughters of God, Christ is an insufficient saviour. 
Jesus is an insufficient saviour. He doesn't have the power to save you. You need to be sexually fulfilled. You need to be sexually fulfilled, right? And any narrative that whispers to the church that Christ is an insufficient saviour, the people of God at that point should wake up, right? Should wake up and call on the name of the Lord. Here's the second implication that's so important. If the love of God is the key to human flourishing, then it is possible to be single, sexually inactive, and fully, fully alive. Let me say that again, because I, I know most of you believe that up here. The problem is most people don't actually believe it down here. There needs to be a movement from the head to the heart. It is possible to be single, sexually inactive, and fully, fully alive. Marriage won't save you. Marriage isn't a cure. Sex won't heal you. An orgasm won't redeem you. Only Jesus has the power to save and redeem. And this is a moment for us to wake up. Now, if the love of God is the key to human flourishing, our one task is to dwell, abide, remain in the love of God, right? Which means submitting our desires to the will of God. That is central to our worship, our witness. It is central to our vision of human flourishing. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Jesus has a love language, by the way. Have you done the five love languages? Well, Jesus has one, it's obedience. He only has one, it makes it quite straightforward. <laughs> it, it's obedience. He said, if, if you love me, you'll obey my command. So one of your central prayers will be five words that change the course of human history. Not my will, but yours, right? So when you get to the top of the tower, there's one question that remains and it's this question, what is God's will and vision for our human sexuality? As we read scripture, what is God's will? What's his vision for human sexuality? Now, this is one of the biggest questions that the church in the West is wrestling with right now. And I want to suggest, here's how we go about that endeavour, is you take the right spectacles. In other words, you take scripture that provides a lens and you look through the lens and you do the hard work of wrestling with what do the scriptures say what do they actually mean? In other words, interpretation. And, and once we found an interpretation that feels true to the text, we have one option. Not my will, but yours. You don't come to the text with a pre-existing worldview and impose it on the text. You come with humility, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and say, Lord, would you speak? I know my desires. Like, like could you take this cup of suffering from me? Yet, not my will, but yours. Here's a couple of questions that I think our generation, including myself within the course to live for demographic, um, even though I'm in my mid-40s. <laughs> these are two questions that we should be wrestling with. And these two questions should shake you up, right? Here they are. We are masters of deconstruction, our generation, we're deconstructing everything. Like it, it is an act of rebellion that 
we're not even weighing up whether something's good or bad, we just deconstruct. So the question is, are we going to use biblical thinking to deconstruct a secular understanding of sexuality? Or are we going to use secular thinking to deconstruct a biblical understanding of sexuality? Right? We are doing in the church right now a phenomenal job of the latter. And, and will a generation emerge that takes the Bible seriously? A generation that believes when you open up the text and welcome the Spirit, there's an explosion of light and an explosion of life. Will we take the Scriptures to deconstruct what is being offered by the secular culture, believing that these words are a lamp to our feet? They taste like honey on the lips. They create a lens so you can see the world as it was created to be. And you're like, wow, God, you're good. And I can thrive in your creation. Let me close with a story then. This is a story of a guy called Hein Pham. Now, Hein Pham um, lived in Vietnam and during the early 70s, he would travel around with a very famous American evangelist. The evangelist was preaching from town to town. Hein Pham went as the interpreter, the translator. Um, now, one day, Hein Pham was captured. The communist regime in Vietnam had kicked in and they captured Hein Pham, believing that he was working for the Americans trying to undermine this communist regime. Now, this American evangelist had no idea what was going on. Suddenly, Hein Pham dropped off the radar and he ended up being taken to prison and over many, many years was brutally, brutally tortured. Like a process of brainwashing, trying to undermine... Hein Pham's faith, trying to feed him Marxist ideology. And after years in prison, it all got too much. Hein Pham started asking questions that you and I would be asking, like, God, where are you right now? Where are you in the midst of this hellhole? And where are you in the midst of my suffering? And, and do you even hear my prayers? It feels like they're just hitting the prison walls. Where are you right now? And one morning he wakes up, it's, it's all been too much. And he basically says, God, enough's enough, I'm giving up on you. It's too costly, it's too painful, I can't do this anymore. I'm giving up on my faith, I'm leaving it behind. Right? The next thing he does that day, he has to go and do his jobs. All of the prisoners had tasks to do. His task was to go and clean out the latrines, the toilets. And as he was cleaning out the toilets, he noticed in the toilets a, a bit of paper with a bit of English text on it. Now, the prison guards were watching him. So he had to do this, like, very in a disguised kind of manner. And he just bends down, picks up this piece of paper and puts it in his pocket. Carries on doing the job. Later that day, goes back to his cell, opens up this piece of paper, gets rid of the excrement and the urine, and then begins to read. These are the words he read. Romans 8, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Imagine reading that. The very same day he gave up on God, he realised God hadn't given up on him. It's like, Lord, you've heard my cries. Lord, you're with me. Next day, does the same job, bit more paper, picks it up in the pocket, goes back to his room, keeps reading. 
every day picks up these pieces of paper, he realized that the prison guards were using scripture to wipe their backsides. Part of the undermining and trying to crush the church and the Christian faith. But every time he picked up one of these bits of paper, he was reading scripture. Now, 17 years later, he gets out of prison, right? And he decides, I want to pick up the phone and have a conversation with my mate, that American evangelist. So he phones him up and the American evangelist, totally shocked, is like, I, I had no idea what happened to you. Like you dropped off the grid. I just had no idea. And Hein Pham begins to tell the story of the torture, the beatings, the brainwashing, everything that happened. And the evangelist said, look, I, I don't even know how you survived. I, I don't even know how you made it through. Like how? How did you make it through? And this was Hein Pham's response. He said, Scripture. Scripture was a lifeline. His words were like a lamp to my feet. It was dark in there, brutally dark. But his words were a lamp to my feet. The words of scripture fed my soul and I encountered the love of the Father and the grace of the Son and the power of the Spirit as I devoured scripture. Like unbelievable. There is such a battle for us, over our generation, are we going to be shaped by the word of God? Are we going to carve out time each day to open up the scriptures, to welcome the spirit, believing in faith, there'll be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. These words, by the way, I know it's tough reading at times, particularly in Leviticus, but, but these words, they're like honey on the lips. These words... They're a lamp to your feet, particularly when you're in darkness and we're in darkness right now. These words, they create a lens. So much uncertainty right now. Do you want to see? Do you want to learn to see? Well, there's a lens that we're being offered. And when you come to the text, not with just a pre-existing worldview, but you come and say, God, show me your heart, reveal your ways. And my one response will be, not my will, but yours. You know when you do that? You open up a door to a wide open space and that wide open space is called the kingdom of God. 